look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm great, Faisal. How was your uh, how's your weekend so far? Uh, disappointing that they haven't changed the rules yet. Uh, we can't yeah. go anywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so I'm disappointed with that. I was kind of hoping, with the numbers being where they are, yeah. and I get the hospitalization, the ICU. The objective yeah. here is to keep people out of hospitals in the ICU. Yeah. And so uh, having these numbers uh, where they are, nice to see the positivity rate below five percent. But unfortunately. We haven't opened up the economy, and man, are people still upset. Yeah, well, and disappointing with the, the vaccination schedules. My mom was supposed to get a vaccine last week, of course. That gets pushed out, Yeah, too. that gets pushed out. So whatever, these are the bumps that we're going to face, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, we are marching closer to a solution than further away, so that's the good news, but I'm with you. It's frustrating. Y- you know, we've got a great show today. Uh, where People are talking about how uh, in your portfolio, you're investing. People are talking about bonds being a waste of time. Yeah. Why even bother? Right. You're going to get next to nothing. Right. We're going to show. Or you could just get killed in bonds, I mean, which is true if you're in the wrong bonds, but bonds still make an, import, an important piece of a diversified portfolio. And I don't think people really understand that, so we're right. going to bring that piece for education for, for our listeners on that one. Yeah. And um, f- newsflash, yeah. taxes are going up. Uh-oh. Taxes are going up, and when will they happen? Yep. So we're going to talk to our... And how will they happen? Yeah. Important. Wow, that's a good one. Yeah, so yeah. our economist has got some ideas on that. So we're going to bring him on the show. Benjamin Tall will be joining us later on in the show. Yeah. Uh, so we had a disappointment because we're not opening up the economy. We have a disappointment. The vaccine isn't rolling out as fast as we'd like it to. We've got a bit of a pullback on that. You know what else is disappointing? What? No pipeline. No yeah, pipeline. that was... Um... Day one, President Biden puts in the veto. Yep. Done. Day one. Didn't even wait. Didn't even say, let's, let me talk to the prime minister first and figure this out. It was, it was, this is Obama 2.0. Listen, there's going to be all kinds of emotions attached to this. He did say it back in May. Uh, I don't know what kind of conversations had taken place between us and them. There's frustration around whether, should we rely on a foreign government for this kind of stuff? Why can't we get our own act together? There's a hundred things going through people's minds. Right and now. it really is frustrating for Albertans when we hear, we're not going to give you a chance. Right. Right, And so this is where the problem lies. There are so many reports out there, Dave, that are saying, we're going to be fine. You know, there's enough oil to flow. Well, there's other pipeline upgrades being done that if you talk to the analysts, you know, we've got capacity coming online to 2025 that'll soak up a, or give us a capacity to ship another 960,000 barrels a day. And given, you know, that we ship 3.8 million barrels a day to the U.S. right now, and that's going to grow to somewhere around 4.4 over the next several years, you know, you can argue that um, that we will have capacity to do that. It doesn't affect, it doesn't remove the emotion attached to the, it's just another slap, right? I don't think our prime minister's reaction to it is going to make Alberta feel welcome and wanted. So there's a whole bunch of things attached to that. Yeah, and I think this is now turning very political. It is, it is turning away from the real story again. And the real story is, what does Alberta need to do to diversify its economy? Right. And, and I think we need to focus on that. We need to put pressure on all levels of government to say, we need to diversify. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, we just cannot rely. And I understand if there's a way to make money off your existing resources, let's do it now because we need jobs and money now. I get that. But we're not talking about the future only. 
We're, we're not talking about how we're going to diversify our economy. You and I build investment portfolios for individuals. Have we ever said we're going to focus on one piece only? No. And we're going to talk about that one piece only? No. We talk about diversification, risk mitigation, making sure we have growth over the long term. Why is that any different than an economy in a province or in a country? Right. And yes, our oil industry is a paramount key piece of this national program that we have. Right. Absolutely. But we have to also focus on other areas and grow those areas. Right. And I think that's where all levels of government need to do that. That's where we as in people in, in our businesses are looking at opportunities. So why aren't we talking about those opportunities? And that's why I've taken a personal stand that I want to help business owners in this city, in this country prosper. And I'm looking at new businesses being built every single day through this pandemic. But I don't hear about what are we doing to diversify even more? Where's the initiative? Where's the money and the resources going yep. to win businesses here? Let's take them away from other areas internationally and uh, throughout Canada and bring them to Alberta. And there are green shoots here. Like we talk about it. There mm-hmm. are companies uh, in the technology space, right? Outside of oil Healthcare, and gas. Health cannabis, whatever right. it may be. Right. There are other businesses and we need, to, we need to profile that. That's a fair comment. Okay. Uh, we had the inauguration this week, right? I mean, yes, uh, Biden made that decision. Um, there, we, we did have some optimism around the inauguration in the markets, um, you, you know, up until uh, sort of Wednesday. Now, and then, and then, you know, the U.S. government has to get down to business. So yeah. uh, there's a change, a change in power. Uh, I would say uh, globally, there was a sense of uh, relief that we might get back to some stability and predictability. The markets like predictability and stability. Right. Irrespective of the individual decisions and, you know, the keystone set aside, I get that. Uh, but that that was a that was a positive. But there's lots of stuff that's coming with a new administration. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, we talk about tax increases here. Probably some tax increases in the United States coming. What? How's that going to affect your portfolio? You've got to be nimble and be able to adjust through this. Yeah. And I think when we look from an economic perspective, we go back to an Obama's first term. He had a similar situation. He had basically a blue wave. Mm-hmm. And he had to deal with the financial crises. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so he had the opportunity to do a whole bunch of programs at that time, such as universal health care, which he wanted. Yeah. And it didn't go through because they had to deal with the financial crisis and the impacts of that situation. Right. I have the same feeling that in the short term, Biden's number one issue 100%. is to get vaccine 100%. and this COVID crisis under control. 100%. And so to think he's going to do some radical stuff I think it's low probability it's going to happen. R- you know, radical meaning going after corporate and high-income earner taxes? Yeah, I all agree. that stuff. It's I, gonna, that's, it, that's deep in the agenda. Especially, yeah. I think that, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's deep in the agenda. I think it's in the agenda. Yeah. It's just deep in the agenda. And until they get this COVID crisis under control, yeah. it's not happening. Right. So we're going to be thinking about something that's not even there yet and not worrying about what is there, which is COVID. Yeah. That's still the focus for this year, right? And probably next year is the rebuild. Probably. So my, my, my view for 2021 is let's, let's build beyond that. Let's, how, do you, how do you look out in the future? And, and we're fortunate enough in a portfolio to look at that. Yep. When you're in an economy or your individual city or a province or a country, you don't really get to look at the bigger picture always, and that's, that's the problem. And part of the bigger picture is also fixed income. Mm-hmm. And so we want to talk about how people can save themselves from major volatility in the market. We're going to talk about how having an, a five-pillar investment strategy really helps. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that at our seminar on Tuesday, February 23rd, 7 p.m., live online. You need to go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. 
Okay, stick around after the break because, as Faisal said, um, you know, does fixed income still play a role in your portfolio given that interest rates are, you know, at historical lows? You'd be surprised at the answer. Stick around. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with David Faisal on 770 CHQR and more than money. Um, Faisal, at least once a year, we have to have this conversation because at least once a year, everybody thinks bonds have no place. It's uh, Interest <laughs> rates are too low and bonds should not be part of the portfolio anymore. Breaking news, 10-year U.S. government bond now over 1.1%. Woohoo! Yep. Let's yep. load up. Let's load up. Anyways. Let's everybody buy bonds, according to uh, some theories out there, because it's the best place to be. And then you're hearing a lot saying, no, stay away from bonds. Mm -hmm. It's a low interest rate uh, right now. And really, interest rates, the only way they can go up is up now. So why even bother? Like, why take that, that risk and when you can go elsewhere? Yeah. And, and listen, we often talk about the complexity of the bond market. Most people aren't familiar with it. Um, but it's gigantic, it's complex, there's lots of places to go, and it's, an, it's a global marketplace. And so Chuck Tomes is joining us today. He's a director and associate portfolio manager. He's uh, live out of Boston with us today, and he's, uh, he's with Manulife Investment Management, and he has, uh, he's been a regular recurring guest on our show, although we haven't talked in a while. Chuck, welcome back. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be back with you guys. Well, my man, you're going to have to, uh, you got a big job because we've got to make some sense of this. You know, we, you heard our setup there. There's lots of questions that uh, regular investors have about bonds and the interest rate environment. So um, why don't I just start with a big open-ended question for you and, and give you a chance to set up. What do we expect in 2021 here? Yeah, it's definitely a, a different year. I do think that people do need to realize that certain bonds, not every bond is made the same, but certain bonds do have more risk associated with them than they've historically had, specifically interest rate risk. When you look at kind of yields around the world as where they stand today, they are so low, as you guys said. Do we think they're going to go higher? Yes, we do believe that the longer end, the 10-year or the 30-year part of the curve could grind higher. The short end should stay the same, though, as central banks are going to effectively be on hold for the foreseeable future until you start to see the economy really start to turn the corner and be on much stronger footing. But with that view, you do need to be selective and understand that with a move, we don't see rates, 10-year yields going up to 4%. But even with the move from, you know, 10-year Canadian government bonds at 85 basis points, as you said, 10-year U.S. yields at a little over 1%, a move to 1.5 or 175, that can have pretty substantial impacts on those bonds from a price perspective. But that doesn't mean there aren't other opportunities elsewhere in the globe that you can still provide a good return profile with minimal volatility. Okay, so uh, let's address the question. Interest rates at all-time lows, i got to get out of bonds. What do you say to that? I'd say that where are you going to go? Because if you do get out outside of bonds holistically, then you're probably going into certain investments that you take on significantly more risk. Yeah. And when you look at that, that opens up a bigger opportunity to the downside. People need to remember that bonds do play a role in an overall asset allocation, and it's usually to provide a volatility dampener during times of volatility. Now, as I mentioned, there are some risks associated with a grind higher in yields that you could see, but you still want to have that piece of your overall asset allocation that you can rely on because as we know, things don't move in one direction and you need to have some of those volatility dampeners. Now, the one thing that I would say is you just need to be a little bit more selective and maybe look at other opportunities that can still provide that volatility dampening effect, 
with less risk of a rate move higher that would produce that negative return. So a strategy that can still produce a strong return, even if you do see that move higher in rates, but can still act as that volatility dampener, provide that offset to the so-called equity side of the allocation in times of volatility. Chuck, we're seeing um, a bit of a home-based bias with many uh, portfolios out there that I'm looking at. People are asking me for a second opinion. When they do have fixed income or bonds, it really comes into two categories. One, fixed income has guaranteed investment certificates or GICs. Uh, I know in mm-hmm. Boston you guys call them CDs. Um, in, uh, in, or they're buying Canadian bonds. The advisor community really doesn't have too much choice outside of the Canadian or U.S. market to really do a lot for a building your own bond portfolio. We have said we've worked with you and, and, and your team uh, for, for over a decade now uh, on building a global bond portfolio. Why go global versus just staying in North America? Where's the opportunity? And maybe even talk about how you pick these bonds, because I think we're getting away from the key aspect of why we invest in bonds when we have a home-based bias. Yeah, and when you're looking at it, that's a very narrow view when you're looking at just the ability to invest in one marketplace. I feel extremely fortunate with the strategy that we work on, we're allowed to look at opportunities everywhere in the globe. And we also feel very fortunate that within Manulife Investment Management, we do have offices around the globe and even on our team, the way it is set up is that we have senior members of the team located around the world as well. So there will always be a senior set of eyes watching the portfolio 24 hours a day, six days a week. But also the reason for the global footprint for our team is that we can always be in the know of any opportunities elsewhere in the globe that do provide a very strong risk-adjusted return profile. So you look at an opportunity like you could see in Indonesia. As we look at how we view the world playing out over the next 12 months, we feel there will be some significant opportunities to increase our allocation outside of North America. You look at Indonesia, for example, it's an investment-grade rated country. You have GDP growth that should be back over 5%, a strong return profile out of the underlying economic fundamentals. And you can get over 6% yield on those securities, plus the potential, when we look at kind of our view of the currency markets Mm -hmm. overall, the potential where a lot of EM currencies have not seen the strength that you've seen in a lot of the developed market currencies. And Indonesia is one that we feel as you move forward throughout this year, you could see a strengthening of the Indonesian rupiah relative to the Canadian dollar. So the total return profile with over 6% yield plus some currency returns really becomes an attractive opportunity going throughout this year. So, Dave, do you see what he basically came out and just said, that there's more ways of making money in the bond market than just the interest that you receive off yeah, the bond? Absolutely. And I think that's what people focus on only is the interest rate. There's there's currency, there's price change, there's different geographical locations, there's corporate, there's government. Yeah, there's all, risks, yeah. It's, it's, whole it's, it's a whole big gambit of opportunity out there, and that's why we play in that space even though the rates of return may not be as high as what we've seen in the stock market, let's say, for us in uh, in 2020. Um, Chuck, there's there's one question that we want to kind of look at is you guys, what I love about working with you guys is that you kind of give us the idea of what's happening in the world economically speaking and what's probably going to happen in the stock market because I believe the bond market is a nice leading indicator for that. What do you see for about, we've got about a minute left, uh, what do you see happening in the bond market that can give us an idea of what's happening in the economy or in the stock market? 
Yeah, you look at just how yields have gone. Now, the short end has stayed flat. You think about where um, 10-year yields were in September. 10-year U.S. Treasuries, roughly around 50 basis points, late August, early September. And as you've seen, you've seen a move upwards, as you mentioned, in yields. And that's coming with inflation expectations increasing, which to us tells us that the expectations of growth as we do see vaccinations continue to roll out and economies start to reopen as we move forward throughout this year, it just to us sets up an environment that you should see economic growth continuing to recover. And I think the bond market is showing that as you've seen some of the the leading indicators or expectations of the indicators starting to shift in that direction. Yeah, that's interesting. And can you speak just very quickly about, um, again, the size and scope of the bond market is huge. You've got government bonds. You also have corporate credits. A little bit about yes. uh, if, if the economy is recovering and, um, and businesses are doing better, what does that, what does that mean for, for corporate credits versus governments? Yeah, it's definitely a positive for corporate credits because you could see some continued spread compression where they continue to do well. That have, helps offset some of the interest rate risk sensitivity The one thing I would say is when we look at it, you just need to be selective because as you continue to see the recovery, it opens up some opportunities for some specific corporations that haven't seen the the benefit in terms of their price because the type of economy we're in right now isn't really conducive. They need to see more of a reopening. So those are the ones that you could see further appreciation and somewhat of a catch-up to some of the the companies that have continued to do well. So we do believe that embracing corporate credit going forward in a selective basis makes a lot of sense to us. Chuck, last thing, you have a highly diversified portfolio globally. Not going to hold you to this, but if everything rolls out as expected, kind of give us a sense of what the the forecasted uh, returns could be in a bond portfolio. Yes. So for us, where we are able to go anywhere, but for us we feel extremely confident and comfortable saying that over the next 12 months we should be able to return three and a half to five and a half percent return net of fees in this low yield environment so we feel it's a it's a very attractive environment for somebody like us that can go anywhere and it really gives us the opportunity to be able to show that we can traverse in the very different markets around the world and still provide that 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 consistent return profile that people are looking for in a fixed income strategy. Thanks, Chuck. We got a we got a roll. Uh, that's Chuck Tomes, director and associate portfolio manager, uh, talking to him live out of Boston. He's with Manulife Investment Management, and three to five percent sounds a lot better than nothing. Absolutely. Right? Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Okay, uh, we got we got to make sense of this right in our income bucket and how to position to to protect people's income and bonds play a role in that. Let's talk about that at our upcoming seminar. Bonds do play a role and how does that fit in in the overall strategy when you're investing in the markets? We're going to talk about that on Tuesday, February 23rd, 7 p.m. live online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Are governments poised to raise taxes? Stick around after the break and we'll answer that question. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back here with David Faisal on 770 CHQR and more than money. Get tons of questions about taxes, my friend. Clearly, with all the government spending that's going on, um, are they going to go up? Interesting article put out by Benjamin Tall, who's our deputy chief economist at CIBC, talking about that the income gap between high-income earners in Canada and low-income earners in Canada has widened. Job creation, 
uh, has happened in that higher income earning um, segment of our through this of pandemic our economy, through the pandemic yeah. and there's been a, a worse than expected fall in the lower income jobs that income gap is becoming a problem could that lead to an increase in taxes in that category that higher income uh, category let's find out uh, Benny welcome to the show thank you a pleasure okay um, we got to talk a little bit about that, the article. So I, I've tried to set up the notion that the pandemic has had a very disproportionate effect on lower income uh, earning Canadians and it has on higher income earning Canadians. Maybe just, just give us a sense of, of how dramatic a difference that has been. And then we can transition to talking about what might come of this um, because of it. Yes, uh, that's a very good point because uh, this has been the most asymmetrical uh, recession ever in terms of uh, the impact on low-income versus high-income Canadians. Uh, all the jobs lost uh, during this recession uh, were lost among low-income Canadians. And uh, what we found, which was very interesting and surprising, is that the number of jobs among high-income Canadians has risen by 300,000 positions. So we have seen a situation in which the income gap, the earning gap, has been widened dramatically. So we all know that income went up during this recession. This is the first recession ever that income went up. And many people blamed the government, said, you know what, the government is spending too much money. To an extent, maybe. But the number one factor behind this increase in income was actually that wages of high-income Canadians went up dramatically because their labor force went up and therefore employment went up. This is something that we have never seen before. Usually any other recession, including the 2008 recession, saw all jobs going down, high paying and low paying. This time, all of them are low paying and all the gain, high paying, something that we have never seen before. Very, very interesting. So, so Benny, does that kind of conclude that we're going to see increased taxes for higher income individuals, and you can define what higher income means for us, and that's going to give that redistribution back to the lower income individuals? Yes, we don't know, but clearly it will be tempting for the government to do so. I don't think they will do anything when it comes to taxation anytime soon, but eventually something will happen. Let's put it in perspective. When I say high income, in this study, we're talking about people who are making, uh, let's say, above seventy, eighty thousand dollars uh, a year. So, when the government is going to go after people, it will be actually more uh, higher-paying uh, individuals, higher-paid individuals. So, let's put it in perspective in terms of the motivation and what kind of uh, taxes. First, uh, we know that before the crisis government spending as a, as a share of the economy was about 15%. Now it's about 35%. Clearly unsustainable, and it will, it will go down. But when it goes down, it will go down to maybe uh, 17, 18, 19% of, uh, the, uh, of GDP. This means that we are seeing a permanent increase in government spending a permanent increase in government spending because we know, without even noticing, that we are putting together the infrastructure, the plumbing for tomorrow's social assistance program. We're talking about universal uh, daycare. We're talking about uh, maybe some elements of permanent uh, changes to the EI system. 
maybe basic income or an element of it. All this will cost money, so there will be a permanent increase in um, the share of government spending in the economy, and at one point you have to pay for it. And that's where I see some increase in taxation, and then maybe uh, they will go after capital gain. We know that already in the fiscal update, they introduced a tax on a big tech, on options. Mm -hmm. Maybe the next step will be to increase the inclusion rate for capital gain taxes. Maybe they will take some, uh, uh, you know, carbon tax money and put it into some sort of general um, purposes. Or if they are totally desperate, they will go after HST. 1% increase in HST is about seven, eight billion dollars of uh, government revenue. Very difficult to avoid the temptation. Again, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Now we are in a recovery mode. It will take a while. But 2023, maybe, we might see some elements of higher taxes. The, so the purpose of the higher taxes, is that just to pay down the excess mm-hmm. debt? Or is that to actually get the redistribution of income to, go, to help the lower income individuals? The numbers that you said was less than $70,000. How does this help the, the lower income individual if you raise taxes? Yes, uh, I don't think it will be about uh, income distribution. It will be more about financing government spending that is designed to help low-income individuals and the gig economy. You will have a more generous uh, social safety uh, net, if you wish, and somebody will have to pay for it. I doubt they will go after income tax because the marginal tax, uh, the marginal uh, rate of uh, tax now is way too high, and I don't think they will go higher than that. So they will go after uh, capital gain. They will go after maybe consumption in terms of HST or even um, carbon tax, something along this line. Yeah. All right. So in the article, uh, I know you're speculating, but you said, um, you know, it seems a reasonable outcome that this will happen. So give us a probability. How, how confident are you that we're marching down this path? Well, I really don't know. It's a tough one. Uh, depends who's uh, running the government, depends yeah. uh, the political situation. There are so many unknowns. What I'm telling you is that we are seeing, going to see a permanent increase in spending and at one point, there will be a push to make sure that this deficit is not rising yeah. too quickly. So there will be some element of uh, higher taxation, but I don't think it will be on income. I think it will be more on capital gain, excluding real estate, I think. It will be more financial capital gain. We have to remember that uh, the government or the Liberal Party and the NDP definitely spoke about it before. Mm-hmm. Even before the elections, it was an issue. So that's something that might happen. Uh, However, it will not raise the revenue that they need, and that's why I fear that there is a risk, a risk that they will go after the HST, but only if you are totally desperate. Got it. Uh, Benny, I want to thank you for your input um, today on this. It's a question that we get lots, and I think you've shed some light on it. Thanks for joining us. A pleasure, and good luck. Thank you. We're joined by Benjamin Tall, Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC. Well, the good news is unlikely in Benny's opinion that it happens this year or even maybe next year. Yeah, 2023. So right. when people are having investment portfolios or assets that they're looking at a capital gain and you're hearing, should I cash in now and take a lower tax rate? Well, according if Benny's opinion is right, then we've got a couple of years to figure this out. However, that's a, still a, a question up in the air for people who've got portfolios. What's interesting now is if we go back to our conversation with Benny and other economists, let's say a year ago, Uh, In the beginning of the pandemic and so forth, uh, 
universal income benefit or, or yep. a, a floor on income for people was not even a, a, a possibility at that right. point in time. It is now uh, on the forefront, making sure that there's some sort of income and lifestyle guarantee, universal uh, daycare, um, interesting uh, perspective on there. What I haven't heard is there's no universal education past secondary education. Mm -hmm. So no post-secondary education, first two, three, four years covered by the taxpayer base because we need to increase that to get higher paying jobs. It's to protect the bottom, not push people up, which is a very interesting move that's happening. And I think we're going to have bigger debates. What's going to be interesting is you're going to start seeing I'm going to call it polarization, for lack of a better word, amongst the political groups, uh, if you look at it from all the different different parties. And that's going to cause a lot of rippling in this, in this country, um, where people are now going to say, um, we should support lower income individuals, or we should not support lower income individuals. And I think that's where uh, we're going to have a very volatile time. It's going to be blasted everywhere on social media. Yep. So yep. be ready for that. Yep. But again, it comes down to do not act on the noise. Wait for the news. Yeah, and that's right. And I, you know, I guess the takeaway here is if there is going to be uh, a permanent increase in spending, put two and two together. That money has to come from somewhere. Exactly. Okay, well, listen, um, this is the environment we're in. It's dynamic. It's always changing. The taxes are always changing. You've got to be nimble. But we still have to support our lifestyle. Yeah, and, and taxes being the most, exp uh, most or the highest expense item you're going to have through your retirement, how do you minimize tax and still reach the lifestyle that you want? We're going to talk about that on our webinar Tuesday, February 23rd, 7 p.m., live online. You need to go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Join us after the break. We're going to talk about why... Why investing in dividends might be a mistake. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Uh, Faisal, before the break, we talked a little bit about, um, I, I teased a little bit about on, uh, you know, dividends. And could a dividend of focus actually be a mistake? And uh, we talk about dividends uh, often. We talk about it sometimes as income. People think of it as income in retirement, right? Which we don't agree with. We think dividends play a it's part. It's not. Yeah, it, it, that's right. It's not that we don't agree with it. It's not. It's not. And we don't need to go down that path, uh, but we do have to talk about dividends as part of a growth portfolio. This is where the... Let me set the problem up. Yeah. There are many Canadians owning Canadian stocks yep. by recommendation of an advisor or on selection of their own. And they're selecting companies that just pay dividends. Right. And they're good dividends. They're, they're always paying. They're good dividend payers. And, and trust me, I invest in some of this as well. Right. Okay, so I'm not saying it's a bad investment. What I have a problem with is it's a focus of the core of a portfolio, or it is the portfolio. Well, there's two things. So keep going with that. Let me, let me continue the setup, right? Because it's the dividend, so I like that cash flow. Number two, particularly in Canada, you'll get some tax efficiency to receiving that dividend from a Canadian corporation. And so, hey, that's a really good strategy, right? We hear that all the time. You get dividends, and I get tax efficiency. What's and the problem I'll, with that? I'll tell you there are a bunch of reasons why I don't like just a dividend portfolio. Right. There are a bunch of reasons. First of all, in order to have a dividend portfolio, you have to add on uncompensated risk. There is, you have to take the good dividend payers, let's assume they're all good, mm -hmm. put them into a separate type of bucket, mm -hmm. a, a portfolio, mm -hmm. and invest in that. So now you've got an active manager or a selection committee that's deciding what stocks go in and what stock goes out. Welcome to increased risk mm -hmm. versus the broader market as a whole. Or concentration risk included in that. Concentration risk. There are many industries that don't pay dividends. Right. 
And so you're going to eliminate them out of your out of your selection criteria because you're focused on dividends. How about the home country bias risk, which we've seen tons of? Now, here's where I have an issue with the tax community in our country. When they are speaking to their clients, and they are what they're saying is true, so I don't want to say they're saying something wrong. They're mm-hmm. saying is true that if you had dividend-paying stocks in Canada, you get a dividend tax credit when you ha- invested in a corporate in your company or in a non-registered account. That's better for you, so just go buy that. Mm-hmm. They are tying the tax strategy to the investment idea. And so what you're forced on, because there's a tax credit, mm-hmm. is you're forced to just buy domestic Canadian stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are so small from an economic impact around this world that you're giving up probably about 89 to 90% of the entire world if you just focus on dividend-paying stocks in Canada. So I'm going to put that in perspective in a minute, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about this notion of um, uh, the home country bias and, and, and how... Uh, Let's talk about total return. I want to describe what that means, okay? But That's me, the number two issue. Yeah. Let me put in perspective how big Canada is in our market. I think our total market cap somewhere between about 2.6 and $2.8 trillion. Correct. What's Apple? $2 trillion? Yeah. Alone. One company. Three quarters. That's how small the Canadian you marketplace take, is. You, you take Amazon, Tesla, and Apple. You put them together. And oh, it dwarfs the Canadian market. Dwarfs th- three it. times over. Yeah. So why are you focusing a home-based bias? Because, first of all, it's easier to invest in your own backyard. You understand it. I can see these companies. I know these companies. They pay dividends. Good. Every, every country has this bias. It's not just Canadians. But the problem with Canadian investing, and advisors especially, giving this type of information that we have a good dividend-paying portfolio, we will, you will get good cash flow from it. They're, they're focusing on the cash flow, the dividends, and not the total return of the portfolio. What does that mean? Here's the example. You invest in company A. Mm-hmm. Company A pays you a 4% dividend. The stock falls 15%. The response that we get in our community to the client is, don't worry, you got your dividend. As long as you don't sell, you're good. Right. Tell me somebody in retirement that doesn't sell their portfolio to live off of. Well, you, you, so even if you don't sell, um, the total return, let's do the math on that. Yes. Minus 15 on the capital value, plus 4 on the dividend. By my math, we're down 11%. Not including fees. Correct. Okay. Versus a non-dividend-paying portfolio of tech stocks that went up 43% last year. Which one's better? And, and, and that's their discipline. The discipline, just buy dividend-paying stocks because they'll do well over the long term. How narrow of a focus do you want to have as a money manager? Right. It should be part of a portfolio, not the portfolio. And it should be part of the portfolio when it's right. And here's the other argument. So, so this is something we argue all the time. We have people that chase high dividends okay, versus a low dividend. What's better, a high dividend-paying company or a low dividend-paying company? Well, you're going to hear the bias. People are going to say high dividend-paying companies are better. That's where people would choose box A, right? right. High dividend is better. Well, what does a company have to do to pay out a dividend? What, how does that work? What's the mechanics? Yeah, so basically you make your revenue, pay your expenses, pay your taxes. After taxes, it's called retained earnings. A portion of that retained earnings go to the shareholders as a form of a dividend. Right. So you're retaining that money and then giving it to shareholders. Now, if you, as a company, give the money to the shareholders... 
That reduces the amount of cash you have within the company to do what? To grow the company even more. Oh, there you go. Is the internal growth rate of that company going to be able to get more than the dividend itself? You know, one of the most wealthiest and smartest investors in the world does not pay a dividend out of his company? Mm-hmm. Warren Buffett. Why has he said no? Because he can take that capital, even if he sits on a whole bunch of cash, waiting for the next opportunity. And every business can do this too. And I'm not saying don't pay a dividend. What I am saying is when you focus on a dividend-paying company, is that a dividend company that's no longer focused on growth? And can they continue that growth model for the future? Because what you need in this economy, through what we've been going through, is growth. Growth that better than your competitors. That's a management decision. And I'm not saying that they, the other the companies that are paying dividends are bad management or bad companies. They're just not going to grow as much. Mm-hmm. And so why would you want that in your portfolio? Why would you want to have a focus of these companies that just pay dividends and are not designed to grow at a faster rate than their competitors? Or pay a high dividend, right, for cash flow. We're eventually going to have to go back to, because there's a whole bunch of people listening right now, and they're cursing at us, saying, no, this is, I fund my life on this. I can, you know, uh, live on the dividend cash flow and so on and so forth. We hear that all Well, that's a replacement. When someone says, I live off my cash flow, my dividends to live in my retirement, they're replacing the dividend-paying stock for a bond. Yeah, I was just going to say. Okay, let's go down that path. That's, that's, that's what they're doing. That's right. If the argument to me is, is a dividend paying I'm getting like cash flow so I can live off the cash flow of the dividend, I have now taken away the bond market, a safety market, and gone to a higher risk because the dividend play is higher. Yeah. And it's like a bond. I no, get a it's not. It's a guarantee. No, it's not. Are you sure? Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about that. How many companies cut their dividends? Hundreds every single year. Right. Tell me it's guaranteed. There's nothing in any writing that says they have to. Now, the minute a company cuts their dividend, the valuation of that company goes down. That's a double whammy, generally. Yeah. Because you're not considered to be a grower, you're considered to be a payer. Right. That's like if your tenant cuts paying their rent to you, the value of owning that that rental property goes down because you don't have someone paying you. Right. I get that. But that shouldn't be your only focus. Right. Would anybody buy a real estate property, let's say $500,000 property, get get $20,000 a year in rent, but if the property value goes down, they're still giving high fives because the rent is still being paid on time? Right. I've yet to meet someone that says, yes, my, my house went down $250,000, but I got my twenty grand." Right. No one does that. But in the stock portfolio, they do. Right. Why? Because we've given them information that says it's okay. Yeah. It's okay, and it's not okay. In the growth portfolio, you need a five-pillar investment strategy. One of part of it can be dividends. It should so, not be the portfolio. Right. But to, again, we have to talk about it. We, we always come back to this. We talk about structure and discipline. And so I want to be clear. We're not talking about the fact that dividend-paying stocks are bad. Right? There's lots of dividend-paying stocks that are good. We own dividend-paying stocks. We're not saying that. It can't be so narrowly focused because it drives a bunch of... of um, Narrowly focused decisions. You end up with home country bias. You end up with concentration risk in certain companies and sectors and geographies, right? And countries and all of these things. You give up opportunity. That's exactly right. You give up opportunity. That's the problem. Right. Total return. Total return is the answer. And so for any of you who are investing in dividend-paying stocks as a focus in your portfolio, go look at the total return. And compare it over the years with other portfolios that have not focused only on dividends, but on total return. 
and you'll see the difference. And we're going to talk about this. Yeah, we are. We're going to talk about the five-pillar investment strategy, why total return is very important in the growth of your portfolio, especially when you're going through retirement. And that's going to be on February 23rd. That's a Tuesday, 7 p.m., live online. You need to register. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com. Okay, uh, that wraps up another uh, another show. I think we've given some people f- some food for thought there. Absolutely. Food for thought on fixed income, food for thought on where dividends should be placed and what that focus means. Uh, we hope to see you at the, uh, at the next seminar. Thanks for tuning in for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.